So if you want to open up your Bible, I'll read for us again, starting at verse 30, chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and did not want and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, Son of the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Lord, we thank you that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, that you are just. Father, you are in need of nothing. And yet, you would send your Son to die for your creation. I pray, Father, you would help us uh, to marvel at your mercy and your kindness. I pray our hearts would not be hardened in our own will, but by your Spirit, you would soften and change our hearts to trust and depend on you. That we would not only ask questions of those things we don't understand, but that we would understand the great glory of your promises and your accomplishments through your son, that he was killed at the hands of men, and three days later he rose from the dead. I pray you would help that not just to be a comfort to our heart, but a participation in your spirit, in love and care for one another, that we would glorify you, that you would be honored and your name would be praised the name of Christ above all. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we continue to work our way through the book of Mark, we have uh, moved in Mark 8 to a point of transitioning to now the declaration of what Christ is going to do. As you look at the book of Mark, you see up to chapter 8, uh, it is declaring the gospel of God, that, that the kingdom of God has come in Christ And it is being declared to his people that they must repent for the end is at hand. The promises that have been made have been started to be fulfilled in Christ's coming to earth. And people are told that they must repent and believe in the gospel of God, the promises of God, the herald good news that God has proclaimed. And starting in chapter 8, we started to see that proclamation of the Christ. We've seen twice already in chapter 9 that Jesus declares to his disciples 
that he would suffer at the hands of Rome and the leaders of Israel and that he would die. And we saw earlier in chapter 9, he said plain to them that he would rise again. And the disciples continue to not understand. They continue to be confused by the statements. Uh, They will not accept what he is saying. One reason we saw last week as we looked in Luke, and you could also look in John, that the promises of God would not be fulfilled fully until the Spirit of God has come. And so they would not understand, they would not be able to accept the truth of what's being declared. Uh, John 7.39 says that these things would come to them, that they would understand at the delivering of the Spirit. When Jesus is glorified and the Spirit has come, that they would understand. But in their own strength, in their own culture, in their own time, they could fathom no idea that the Messiah, the one who was sent to save the world, the one who was sent to free Israel from Rome in captivity, to make them the nation above all nations, how could he come and die? How could he be the Messiah if he was going to die at the hands of those whom he was to overthrow? The disciples could not fathom how those two things could go together. How the conquering king could be the suffering criminal on the cross. Because what they did not see and what they remained in struggling to see, though they had an earthly humility as the men they are, they would not stand completely humbled before God, before the cross. That he was innocent, that he was not a criminal on the cross, but on a criminal's cross, he was paying for their sin. The disciples assumed they were those who would march into battle with Jesus to destroy Rome. And they rejoiced in such ideas. As we see in the text today, they even argued over who would be the greatest in his reign. As we look at the context, the humiliating plans of Christ, the disciples hear what Jesus says again in verse 30 and 32, and they cannot fathom how that could be. We've seen Peter already try to correct Jesus in saying, no, 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 we have a better plan. Maybe it is that interaction with Jesus where Peter was told, get behind me, Satan, that wisely humbles the mouth of the disciples that when they don't understand, they just stay quiet. Because after you saw Peter got told, get behind me, Satan, they might not be able to fathom in their mind a way to ask that wouldn't get rebuked. But we see that these are still men who are struggling. Despite the fact they walk with Christ, they are with Him, He is there. In their own strength, in their own power, they are still struggling with what they know of the world. They are bold when it serves them. And we see that in their argument. After Jesus has been transfigured before James and Peter and John, as Jesus has now come down and once again displayed His glory and His power, as the disciples could not cast the demon out of the boy, and Jesus cast him out and quickly leaves, seeking to teach His disciples, Not there to draw a crowd, but there to live the mission that he was sent for. The disciples, as they walk along the way, 
decide to have a small debate among themselves. You see that debate starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, who was the greatest? Oh, no, I skipped a line. He didn't ask them that. That was their problem. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Number one, verses 33 and 34, the humiliating realization. The disciples are walking probably a couple days. It's through the region of Galilee. And so they're coming to Capernaum, which is part of the region of Galilee. And it says, as they arrived there, Jesus asked them this question. We have other gospel accounts that uh, talk about the question a little bit more, that Jesus is overhearing what they're saying, that he is, he is instigating this conversation, and the disciples engage in it and participate. Here in Mark, we have the quickest and plainest statement of it. But as Jesus asks the question, what were you discussing on the way? The room falls silent. They don't want to talk about it. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever been caught in a conversation? Or asked a question and then tried to explain it out loud, and as soon as your mouth opened, you knew, I have made a grave mistake. So often, just this morning, I opened my mouth to someone and I thought, shouldn't have said that. That wasn't it. I I pray, not as commonly as it happens to me, it happens to you. I pray it's more to me because it's a lot. But how many times does someone just ask you to explain what you meant? Can you just articulate that again? Can, can you please explain? Can you ask a question? And you immediately know. That's not a conversation I should have been having. I picture these disciples, 12 grown men, walking next to the risen soon to be risen, proclaimed to be risen, Messiah. And they're arguing. I'm better than you. Oh, no, 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 no. Not you. Maybe some of them are humble enough not to take part in the who's better. No, they're just jumping on Team Peter or Team John. You see Peter? You see how buff he is? Come on, guys. Peter was like a solid fisherman. John and James, their dad was a fisherman. They just got in the industry because of that. Peter could wreck some fools. He'll be the greatest. Peter, maybe gloating, maybe still in shock from the transfiguration, doesn't tell us exactly who's participating. All of them debating, discussing on the way who would be the greatest. I I just picture little kids having those conversations. My dad could beat up your dad. Right? You hear those kids saying that? Like, I'm to the point where I'm going to tell my kids, like, I can't even beat up Judah, guys. Please don't have those arguments. Like, your dad's just going to get beat down. Right? I don't, I don't tell my kids they can expect me to protect them from everything. I tell them, Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Right? Do not be frightened or dismayed. Why? Because your super buff dad is with you? No. Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. You don't have to be frightened. 
Now, yes, I could defend my children better than they could defend themselves, but I've only got a couple years left on that. How foolish for us to argue such things about who, who is the greatest, right? right? I mean, I remember young men in our ministry coming and asking me, which, which do you think would win in a fight, Superman or Batman? I tried not to punch him. I was like, what are you even asking? Why, why would I care who would win in a fight? Your pretend superhero on this side or your pretend superhero on this side? That's the question you want me to answer? That's what we're going to spend. Like, like, that's what I came here for. That's what I left my wife and children to sit with you at this coffee shop for the glory of God to talk about if Superman or Batman would defeat each other. Like in that moment, I felt like I am Jesus. I have never been this dumb in my life. What is going on? But how many arguments? How many vain discussions? How many futile attempts at my own pride and my own desire have I made such arguments? How many times have I sat in front of someone and not asking who's greater, just sitting there convinced in myself, it's me. I'm greater. I don't ask such stupid questions. It's no better. It's no better than the argument to sit in front of someone and just determine, I don't have to argue with them. I know who's greater. But the disciples, in their foolishness, as the Savior was walking with them, all they could do is have their eyes on one another to ask, who will be the greatest? So distracted. And rightly silent at the question. Right? Rightly, as soon as Christ asks the question, they are stopped in their tracks. Realizing what we have been doing is not important. And they listen to him. They get clarity from Christ. As the question hung in the air and they stood shamed, humiliated of their conversation, but wanting to understand, Jesus clarifies for them the humbling expectation. Who is the greatest? Who will be the first? Who is the one that runs the lead into the Christian battle? Who is the one that is exalted? Who is the one who is the greatest? And Jesus answers them in verse 35. He sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The humbling expectation. If you long to be first, if you want to be the greatest, if you seek to be the one who leads, what do you do? He says, the greatest among you, any who would be first, any who would lead, any who would run, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
Jesus is proclaiming to them what servant leadership looks like, what leadership in the Christian church should be, that if they are concerned with being those who run first, those who lead, their concern should be not with themselves and who is going to do it, but with everyone behind them and how are they leading them. They should be the servant of all, not running for their own glory, running for the good of others. Not the one who is taking the bullet so his name will be praised, but the one is taking the bullet so his brother behind him will not. And Christ does not just declare this for him. He lives it. He is the greatest of all. It's Mark 10, 45 that continues to declare in the book that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ did not come to be served. He did not come to be worshiped. It's why Christ flees the crowds. He was not trying to create an earthly reign. He was cleansing his people for his earthly reign. He did not come to be served. He did not come to be praised. He came to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. And he declares and teaches the disciples this truth, the humbling expectation that if you are to be a servant of God, if you are to be, quote unquote, first leading in the kingdom, you do not lead for your name. You do not lead for your glory. You lead for Christ's name, for his glory, which means you came not to be served, but to serve your life for the sake of all. In no way can you serve for the ransom of many, but like Jesus had recently told them, you must take up your cross and follow me. You must deny yourself and follow him. Jesus is continuing to communicate these things to his disciples. And he is patient with their denseness. He continues to communicate the same truth as they continue to be confused. If anyone would be first, the greatest position, he must be last, he must view himself as the servant of all. Now, it is not foreign in our time to think of leadership in this way, right? We we don't talk about civil nobles, we talk about civil servants. We don't think of nobility as a class separate from others. Uh, But in America, we often think of all people being equal. Uh, We are very comfortable with the idea that there are those who are there to serve us. What we lose in that is the ability to serve others. See, in a kingdom, it is easy to think the king is greater than us all, which is uh, necessary and true if we're speaking of Christ. But in a kingdom, the king is just a man like you. It's the early arguments of our country uh, that we should not praise kings because from one man who is a lion comes another man who is a donkey. And why would we hold lines of nobility? And so we argue that men should serve and be elected to serve and, and serve the people, which is good for us in many ways. But what we fail in is a uniting under a kingdom. 
an idea that there is one who is greater than us. We see in the book of Samuel as uh, the people of God cry out for a king, he gives them Saul, and Saul is a king who is like all earthly kings, he worships himself. You read to 1 Samuel 15, uh, 14, maybe through 16, somewhere in there, you're going to see Saul disobeying what God has commanded. And in that point, it is said, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. It is better to obey what God has commanded than for you to say, I know better. I am going to give of God what he needs or what he wants because he needs and wants nothing. He is the reigning king. But in the minds of men, they had to find the one who is the greatest, the one who is the most powerful, the one who they can stand behind and cheer on as he fights. And this is not far from us. We cheer on teams, we cheer on fighters, we cheer on people. We look for those who will lead in our name. But all are failed if they are focused merely on people, on humans. The reason that man is made to serve one another is to serve and to worship God. Man is made to give his life as a sacrifice for others, not in a generic, altruistic, political, equality of men way, but in a wonderful, beautiful way of worshiping to say there is only one who stands above all. It is God, the creator of all things. It is Christ, the King, who reigns, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And so while many of our own ideas of leadership are focused on service to others, they fail to recognize the purpose of our service. It's rooted in a love for humanity, an exalting of self. And we'll get to, as we apply out of Philippians 2, why that tends to be. But I wanted quickly, as Jesus says here, who would be the greatest among you is the one who is servant of all. We see that through all biblical examples of leadership. Everything in the New Testament that communicates about leadership communicates that they are servants of others, to care for others. Acts 20, 28, as Paul calls to the elders of Ephesus, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock. Right? Acts 20, 28, Paul tells them, you must pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock which you have been made overseers, those who rule over or those who lead to care for the church of God. Why must they keep careful watch on themselves and others? To care for the church of God. Not that they would be exalted. They keep a close watch on themselves because their job is not to proclaim themselves, but to care for the church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. Right? Acts 20.28 20, declares that a leader must think about his own life and the effect of that on others because his role is to care for the church of God. And then he is immediately reminded, it is not your church. It is the church which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Timothy 3 
gives the example. It says a qualification for a man who leads is he must manage his own house. He must have a wife and children who are well managed, well cared for. Why? Chapter 1 of first, or rather 1 Timothy chapter 3, 5 says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If he does not know how to lead others, being his household, if he doesn't know how to care for them, how will he care for the church of God? His job is not to stand out as an example alone. It is not to be one who is worthy to follow alone. It's because Christ is worthy to follow. He is to be one who cares for others. 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7 communicates that he must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. They would not be condemned in that he begins to think that he is what's important and not the people in the condemnation of Satan, pride, and he would not be ensnared in the sins of the earth because he holds himself honorable among all people, even those outside the church. Titus 1.7 says an overseer as God's steward, as one who has been given a charge of the possessions of God for him. Right? He is a steward. He is one who rules over a people. They are not his people. They are God's people. He is merely a manager of them. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. For what purpose does he look at everyone this way? Why is a servant of the Lord to be kind? Why is he to be able to teach? Why is he to patiently endure evil? Will they reflect the character of God, his kindness? We saw last week, we looked many times, as Christ teaching those who were without a shepherd. Patiently enduring evil, Christ living on earth every day amongst the sin of man, patiently enduring. No, no picture greater shown than his cross, that he would suffer at the hands of his creation as they do evil to him, that he would patiently endure. And so for what reason does it say, so that as a good steward, you may look like Jesus? No, that's not what it says. It says, so as a good steward, you may be wise enough and able enough by your own character and your own righteousness to convince others. No, it's not what it says. Look with me at what it says. 2 Timothy 2, 24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses 
and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What is the purpose that they reflect God and his glory? Because they depend on God, even in all of their best efforts, their greatest kindness, their greatest gentleness, their greatest teaching, they are unable to grant repentance. They are unable to take those who do not have their hope in Christ to hope in Christ. So they serve those even whose hope is not in Christ as a servant of God, not to fight with them, not to war with them, but to plead with them gently and kindly clearly and truly that God may perhaps grant them repentance. I think this is just for church leadership. This is for all leadership. Husbands, I want to encourage you to look at the passages about your leadership. There is not one that says you are the head of your household. There is not one that says you are the king of your castle. There is no passage that says you are the dictator of direct TV and you decide where the remote turns. There is none that says you are a king in which a kingdom you live where your small little pagans and your glorious queen worship and exalt you. No. It is mentioned that you are the head of your household. It is not mentioned to you. It is mentioned to your wife, and it is mentioned as clear doctrine. It is stated as a fact. It is never commanded of you. You do not make yourself the head of your household. You, by choosing to enter a covenant of marriage, have become the head of a household. You are. You do not become. You do not make. You do not reign. You are placed there. Not with rights, but with responsibility to serve others. There is no command to husbands to rule over. There are commands to lead well in love, not being harsh with the woman that God has given you, Colossians 3. To honor her, to live with her in an understanding way because she is an equal vessel of the grace of life. Yes, she is a weaker vessel physically. But she is an equal vessel of salvation, of God's promises, of His grace. You lead her in love. Not to rule over her, not to crush her. That is actually the very statement of the fall in Genesis 3, that your temptation will be to crush her, to rule over her. And your command is to love her, to honor her, to understand her, to take the responsibility of your leadership, not to claim the rights. You are to serve others. Parents, it is the same. You do not gain authority over your children. You are given authority when God graces you with a child from the womb. They are yours, and you are responsible. You are not responsible to build them up in your ideas, in your understanding. You are not given rights and authority over them. 
so that they can be little images of you, that will be very short-lived. They will soon come to recognize that you are just a man or just a woman, just as they are. But you are commanded to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that command comes with warnings. In both Ephesians and Colossians, it says, not provoking them. You must consider how you lead them. Yes, you rule over them. You are their parent. But the declarations to you are not about your rule. It's about what you are to do in your rule. You serve them. You serve them not as the world commands. You serve them as Christ commands. As you rule over them, you lead them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord concerned with their response. Not provoking them. Not sparking within them anger and frustration. I want to say this for your own comfort. Does that mean your children should never get angry or frustrated? No, they're humans. But the warning to you is don't let your life be the source of their ongoing frustration. Even if they're going to tell you that. You're bigger. You're smarter. God has given you authority for a reason. That you need to wrestle with your leadership. Because all leadership, from the head of the church to the bottom, from those positions which are called and qualified to those positions in which many of us share by choice and family, leadership is about service. It is about praise, but not yours, His. It is about Him being exalted because the Son of Man, who was the only one who could have come to demand praise, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus, in a simple statement, tells them, if you want to be first, if you want to lead, if you want to be held in honor, stop thinking about yourself. Stop being concerned about what you want and serve others. Serve others. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? It will be the one who sees himself as last, as servant of all in which he gives them a humbling illustration. Look with me at verse 36. It says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The humble illustration Jesus replaces their childish argument with a child as an illustration. He puts before them the most needy, the most dependent, the most unable available to them. In our society, we tend to worship children. And so we view them primarily as innocent and perfect. And if we could all just be like them. We worship them because we are a lazy society. 
who does not like responsibility, who do not want to serve others, uh, who don't take joy in the fulfillment of living like Christ and sacrificing ourselves for others. We see every sacrifice as a burden. We make shirts that say, I can't adult today. We worship and tell children, this is the greatest time of your life. Every time I hear someone tell a child in high school, this is the greatest time of your life, I say, oh God, please not. Don't let it be. You're cursing that child, not blessing them. The beauty of a child is that they do reflect to us our constant dependence, our constant need. In Matthew 18, in this same account, Jesus says he puts it before them and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever sees themselves as the one who is dependent and needy, whoever humbles themselves to put themselves in the place of a child, a young little child. I'm not talking about a teenager. We all know that teenagers could rule the world right now and everything would be better, right? We're just waiting for them to step up and do it. Stop talking about it. It's a little child. It's one who is humbled, one who is dependent, one who is needy. And he says, unless they are willing to become like this, like a needy, dependent child, needy of their father, needy of their creator, one who depends, Unless they're willing to lower themselves from, I can be the greatest man who ever lived. I will be the one who follows Christ into battle. I can do this to one that says, I need you. I'm dependent upon you. I will do what you tell me. I will seek to honor you. I need you. I, I need your help. I need your provision. Right? like a little child that, that doesn't even recognize that every day they're fed and clothed and bathed. They're given not for you to hold that over their head. Not for you to say, do you not know? Right? I frequently make the joke with my kids. I go, what am I going to get for that? And I say, 18, 18 years of room and board. That's your reward. Please take out the trash. Right? Why has God given you such authority? That you would be reminded that you live under such authority. It is he who causes the rain to fall on the just and to the unjust. It is he who owns all the fields, the organic ones and the ones trapped in little cages. Whatever meat you eat, he reigns over all of it. He holds it all in his hand. He is not needy of you. He does not need you to bring him an offering. He blesses you to do so that you might remember him who holds and owns all things. You come to him as a child. And he tells the disciples, if you want to be the greatest, then you must receive these. You must not be the one who sits and argues with men who will be the greatest, but you must be the man who sits and says, who are the children of God and I will give my life for them. Whoever receives one of these, 
Whoever takes them in, Jesus says, whoever gives them a drink of water, who is ever willing, as dependent and needy as they are, to serve those who are dependent and needy by the strength that God supplies, he says, such are these that are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who serve. Because, as Paul says, in Acts 20 to the Ephesus elders, and the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, his children, his people. If you look on the back of your handout under application, no one has declared this as clearly in history than the Spirit himself through the hand of Paul, Philippians 2, As Jesus gives this command that they ought to serve others, it is no coincidence that it comes on the heels of him telling he would die and give his life as a ransom for many. He would rise again. And Philippians 2 gives encouragement, not just to those who lead. Maybe this morning you sit here and you could say, well, I'm not a church leader. I'm not a father. I'm not a mother. I'm not a husband or a wife. Praise God, I'm off the hook. I haven't signed myself up for any of that kind of responsibility. No Christian. If you are a Christian, you have great joy, great encouragement, great participation in the Spirit to serve with all your heart for the glory of Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. If you look with me at your handout or in your Bible, Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any encouragement, any emboldeningness, any strength given to press forward, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any consolation, any covering, any acceptance, any feeling of belonging, Any in which he has wrapped you in his arms in such a way that you feel I am safe here and I can be here and I can run here and I can have strength here. Any encouragement, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit. If there is any sense in which you understand you have been united with Him because of regeneration, that the Spirit of God has transformed your heart so you who were once dead in your sins and trespasses are now made alive together with Christ, that you long to run in the works in which He has prepared for you beforehand, that are yours in Him, that the Spirit empowers and is given any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any warmth and kindness of God towards you, any sympathy, any willingness to say that He will take upon Himself your burden, which He has. If any of this exists, Paul says, complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy by being fully unified in Christ. Complete my joy by knowing He has died for our encouragement, our comfort, our participation in the Spirit, His affection toward us, His sympathy toward us. 
that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Do you find any comfort there? Then what should you do? You should seek to be unified. And how do you do so? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, a mind that is unified, a mind that does nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but for the glory of God. One in humility counts others as more significant, more important than himself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, those things which serve you most, but to the interests of others, how others might be most served. And God has purposed you for this. He has purposed you for this. In your participation in the Spirit, you have been given gifts to serve others. Christian, you have spiritual gifts, and they have a very specific service. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, as each has received it, a statement of fact that each of you, if you are Christ, you have received a gift, and what are you to do with it? Use it to serve one another. And how do you do so? As a good steward of God's varied grace. Goes on to say that there are speaking gifts, those who should speak the oracles of God. And there are serving gifts, those who should serve by the strength that God commands. So that all serving is for the glory of God and you are gifted that you would serve one another. You do not have a gift to exalt yourself, but a gift to lift the body to the praise of Christ. There are few times that I think we see this as beautifully on earth than when we sing together. I remember as a young Christian going to a college Bible study with young men and women who loved Christ and sitting in a man's living room and singing together the praises of Christ and being so refreshed, not listening to the voices of others, not hearing my own voice, but being there with them proclaiming Christ. And I remember a young man coming in and he's like, you guys sound like you're trained like a choir. We we rehearse every week. We gather to sing to Him, to praise Him. Each is given a gift, not to exalt themselves, but in the same way as we sing on a Sunday morning. It is not to raise our voices alone, but to raise them together. I love when Danny says, just our voices, and the voices are so loud, they're indistinguishable from one another because the point is not your voice. I like to sit up front so that I am not distracted by the thought of, oh Lord, can they hear me? Or, oh God, are they listening? To be able to sing freely for the praise of God, unconcerned about the person in front of me, except that they would praise for the glory of God. And that is what the church is to be. There's a maxim, a gospel of our own time, which we repeat often. 
I have to do what is best for me and my family. I have to do what is best for me and my family. Well, Christian, I would encourage you, you will find that text nowhere in Scripture. I have to do what is best for me and my family. It's not a verse. It is not a biblical maxim. The biblical maxim is this. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourself. It is not those who love those who are closest to them that display the grace of Christ, but those who love their enemies. And how much more then should we love the body of Christ? Christian, your decisions must not be made on the basis of you must do what's best for you and your family if what's best for you and your family ignores God's family. You are His child with His people. And you must do what is best for the interest of others, not your interest alone. Look first, not to what serves you best, but listen first to what serves his people best. And do what serves them. Continues in verse 6, that you have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ's who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what are we to do if this is true? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, because this mind is yours in Christ, because you have been given all of this in Christ, because Christ has done this, and his name should be praised above all, consider the God whom you have been saved by. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, only, not only in the presence of Paul, but with fear and trembling because you were in the presence of God, work out the salvation you have been given. And how do you do so? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do not let your presence, your company, your together with the church be one of grumbling and disputing. Do not be a whiner and a fighter. What ought you to be? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering for your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says he is willing to die, that God would be praised, 
that they would be encouraged, that he would be glorified at the end, and they should be so willing not to live in grumbling and disputing, but seek to be holy and blameless because you are the children of God. And you are a light to the world. Not you alone, Christian. You together. Display to the world what it looks like to find unity even in disagreement. To find Christ as the name above every name. To live not as one who disputes and grumbles, but one who looks to move forward and say, how do we move forward? Not just in my best interest, not just in yours, but in the interest of others. How do we press on to glorify and honor God? Not what's best for you, what's best for them, your wife, your children, God's people. And I do not say this to you for Faith Bible Menifee. I say Faith Bible Menifee because I know you love Christ above all. I know there is comfort, there is encouragement, there is love. There is sympathy and affection for you in Christ. Whatever frustration, whatever difficult, whatever comes to pass, and you feel like, I can't do this, work out your salvation before Him because He works in you to both will and to do. Not to grumble, not to dispute, but to seek to be holy, looking for the interest of others, for the glory of Christ. This is not a call that says, do what's best for you. Because when the world seeks to have unity, it always ends in devising. It always ends in division. It always ends in battles. Every political cry for unity then turns to cry division. Man knows no way to make unity because he has nothing but himself to unify around. Christian, you have one. It's Christ. You do not serve yourself, you serve Him. And in serving Him, you live like Him, who came to give His life a ransom for many. Don't squabble over who is the greatest. He is the greatest. Serve and love to see what the greatest might have planned with your life for His glory, because He has given Himself as a ransom that you would even be able to, even to consider. Let's pray that God would be so kind to help us not just hear the word and read the word, but because we, unlike the disciples, have the spirit, that we would receive in our heart the truth and seek to live for his glory. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Father, I thank you for so many hands willing to serve. God, I thank you for uh, the men who set up this morning, all those who work in hospitality and children's, all those who are serving our body week in and week out with no recognition, but in your strength and your grace and for your praise, continue to serve. I pray you would give us grace and endurance, Lord, that you would help us to hear the truth that you have given your life, the life of Christ, as a ransom for many. 
And it would end our disputing, it would end our grumbling, and it would cause us to marvel that you would make us blameless before you. I pray you would do so, Lord, not for our own good, not for our own sake, not for our own children or our own family, but for your people, for your kingdom, and in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, that we would reflect to the world a people bought by you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.